This is the Mind Trading Podcast. I'm Jamie Usher. We're talking self-development and mental health. Welcome back. Okay, welcome to the latest episode. I think if you were a child that maybe had unmet needs, possibly feeling unsafe, insecure, unvalidated, unloved, possibly abandoned, rejected in some way, I believe you're going to get something from this episode. I asked my guest Jess O'Gar to come on because she's a clinical psychologist and she really knows her stuff about a form of therapy called schema therapy. Now, a schema is the way that our brain organizes and makes sense of information. And sometimes the way that we make sense of information isn't the most healthy. We can possibly do it in ways that are kind of maladaptive and unhelpful to us. So getting a good perspective on the kind of schemas that we may have, and everybody has different ones, can be really super impactful to our life in the most positive way. So that's why I asked Jess on, and she was amazing, and she is amazing. (laughs) She was an amazing guest, and uh, one of the things I really liked about having her on, not only about her and I nerding out about psychology stuff and schema therapy stuff, but she was just such a down-to-earth person and clearly passionate about what she does, super knowledgeable. And uh, yeah, she was a great guest. And as I said, I think everybody will get something from this episode because schema therapy and a good understanding of the schemas could be something that everybody can get something from, particularly if there are certain things that you experience in your childhood. I think you're especially going to get something from this episode. I just hope you guys enjoy it as much as I liked making it. Um, but oh, yeah, I was just going to talk about it before, but the way that I came across the Psych Collective on the YouTube page and your videos on there about the vulnerable child and the angry child um, and even schema therapy. So what happened was it was introduced to me last year through through my own um, psychologist. Uh, I guess that was one of the forms of therapy you started to talk to me about just through through like um, or because of childhood stuff and maladaptive schemas that I was using or even life traps I was getting into. What he um, recommended to me last year I read the book by Jeffrey Young, The Reinventing Your Life. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's probably like the Bible for, for people that follow him, I guess. I don't know. It was definitely a life-changing book for me. And then I realised, oh, next time I go to the, my psych, I'm like, I want to I learn more about what he's talking about because there's a lot of interesting things in there because I, I study psychology as well. I'm in my honours year of so, uh, studying psychology. So I'm like, I want to... My condolences. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's tough. Um, but yeah, so I, I learned more about it and then and like you started talking to me, yeah, but vulnerable child, angry child, and we'll get into more about that later. But I went into YouTube and, and typed in the angry child and your video was the first one that popped up from the cycle. Yeah. And you were, you were standing there. I think you were, you were in front of the whiteboard with the first one. And then you, there was another yep. one you were, you were talking to someone else, which I think was the, the vulnerable child one where you were talking to someone else. I can't, I can't remember exactly yep. that. Yep, that's my business partner, Dr. Algris Gators. He's a consultant psychiatrist. So that's how I came across you. Um, and then I've, I've watched those videos probably three or four times each. You talk about it so well. You explain it so well. And Thank maybe you. maybe I'm just nerding out on psychology stuff, but I don't just find this interesting from a psychology perspective, how relevant this has been to me in my own kind of growth has blown my mind and I and I honestly think it's a topic that I think a lot of people probably just don't really know about but also if they I guess understood it a little bit 
and um, it kind of gives a bit more of a healthy perspective on how they are as an adult now because of mm-hmm. maybe how things were as a child. I mean, people talk about the inner child and that kind of stuff, but I don't think that really goes, just talking about your inner child is not really enough. This gives it like a really, uh, this just gives it a It lot gives it a framework. Things. Exactly, yeah. I was going to say structure, but I was going to say, yeah, that's a much better, that's much better way of talking about it. Before we get into that, so let me introduce Jess Ogar. And you're, you're from the Psych Collective. Is that what you do predominantly? No. Actually, during my day job, I work at a private psychiatric hospital in Wollongong, New South Wales. I've been there for eight years after finishing my master's degree. Okay. The psychcollective.com is kind of a side project that I do with my business partner, who is a psychiatrist. Um, I'm very lucky. He's someone that I've known for many years now. I'm very lucky that I have a psychiatrist that I get to work with who is not too heavy-handed with the script pad. So he's very much focused on psychological interventions and our motto is skills before pills, skills instead of pills. We know that the pills play their role sometimes, but our focus is more on skills before pills and really trying to increase people's capacity to respond to situations skillfully without reaching for meds or we also say skills before schooners and skills before smokes and wanting to try and reduce people's dependency on stuff to take away their emotions or manage their distress and for people to become more adept at managing their own internal experiences. That's brilliant. I love love that saying. That's that's so good. Your training is psychology though? Yes. So I'm a clinical psychologist. And how long have you been, I guess, practicing as clinical psych? Um, as a clinical psych for about eight years. So I finished master's in 2013, got lucky enough to be tapped on the shoulder at graduation day to say, Hey, we've got this job that we think you might apply for. And I got it. And I've been with the same hospital ever since. Um, I'm 2IC of the department there and I manage all of our outpatient programs. So I write, I write programs, I write group interventions, I do individual therapy on the side, but because I work for a private at psychiatric hospital, mm-hmm. we're very aware of the fact that not everyone in Australia or even the world can afford private psychi- psychology or psychiatric treatment. And yep. that's kind of where the idea for the Psych Collective was born. So we know that we've got a lot of stuff to say. Um, mm. Al and I aren't opposed to pontificating at times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we wanted to try and get the message out there of people who... <sighs> With no disrespect to services like Beyond Blue, but those sort of things are, here are the symptoms of depression. If you think that this sounds familiar, go talk to your GP. And there's nothing really actionable you can do with that. Mm. So our philosophy was trying to make, help people to make sense of their own stuff, help people to make sense of what's going on for them so they can take a little bit of ownership. And that's not to the exclusion of psychology, psychiatry. You absolutely need your own treating team. But say schema therapy, for example, which seems to have become our niche, Mm. is there's not a lot out there. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of books on it. So there's not a lot of resources and references on it. We mm-hmm. wanted to be the point of difference where people could get information on different types of stuff so they can start taking some responsibility of sorting out their own lives. I love that. That's that's right up my alley. That's what, probably why I even started this podcast, so why I started yeah. studying psych and doing what I do is because if we can kind of make it clear for people that, okay, yes, these things happen, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, that most of the time for most people, there's probably something that they have done inadvertently. Well, they may not have known they've got themselves into a position where they're now feeling with feelings of depression or anxiety, which can then mean that the strategies they can use to get themselves out of it again, or maybe even that, maybe even that feelings of depression are happening for a reason to, 
for a whole bunch of other reasons. But yeah, basically yeah. the, the strategies that you can use to help yourself. It's not just bang, you've been, you've got this depression and it's floated above you on a black cloud randomly. It's there's some there's things behind it. Yeah. My area of expertise is borderline personality disorder and complex trauma. Okay. So my philosophy towards psychology and trauma and, and the patient group that I work with is it is not your fault mm-hmm. that you have this mm. and it is still your responsibility to recover from it. <laughs> and um, that sense of I'm not a mechanic. You don't bring me your car, I fix it for you and then hand it back kind of yeah. perfectly in good condition. This is you come to me, we work together, we work out the skills, we work out the strategies, but you've got to do the work. I can't do it for you. Yeah. I'm in your corner, but I'm yeah. not doing the work for you. I will give you the skills, but you've got to be the one to actually implement the skills and the strategies and to learn about yourself yeah. and to learn how to live with your trauma and still have a healthy functioning life despite any early childhood stuff that may have happened as well as adult stuff. But okay. most of my patients have got early childhood stuff, which yeah. is how I got to schema therapy. So borderline you're talking about, is that so is that one of your main areas that you would work with people in? Like that's yeah. one of the main, yeah? Okay. Yeah, predominantly. Okay. Is that because it's just one of the most common things or is that, do you like working with that or why? why would that uh, yeah, no, I, I like working with it. Look, there's, there's a lot of psychologists out there who won't work with borderline personality disorder because it is considered one of the trickiest mm. uh, diagnoses to work with, both from a treatment point of view, but also a patient management point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is common for people who experience BPD to have a lot of suicidal thoughts or self-harming behaviours, a lot of impulsivity, yeah. a lot of uh, emotional dysregulation, relationship disturbances that can then occur in the therapeutic relationship itself. Mm-hmm. So they're hard work. Mm. However, they didn't. They, they weren't born this way. It's usually because of an accumulation of early childhood experiences, usually traumatic or invalidating, mixed with what we call a hypersensitive temperament that meant that they've got this cascade of symptoms that they're struggling to deal with. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm originally from Perth, so I live in Sydney now. Yeah. But I'm actually from Perth. And when I was doing my undergrads, when I was doing my honours year, mm-hmm. I was working for the Department of Psychiatry at Royal Perth Hospital. Just as a medical secretary, I was just in the admin team, yep. but I was the admin team that supported the DBT group that was is the specific intervention that we have primarily in Australia for BPD. Yep. And it was through seeing... Uh, the clinicians there and the way they worked with the patient group. And BPD, back when it was first kind of conceptualised in the 80s, was considered a death sentence. So yeah. you've got BPD, that's done, you cook, there's no hope for you. Okay. But by working with this particular group of clinicians, they were getting phenomenal results. They yeah. were treating the untreatable. And it was so inspiring to see the, the kind of the results that they were getting that I was like, yeah, I want to go do that. Yeah, And then when okay. I moved to Sydney, I joined Project Air Strategy. So you might have heard of Black Dog Institute. Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. So Black Dog Institute, very, very well-known, high-profile. Black Dog Institute is for mood disorders. Mm-hmm. Project Air Strategy is for personality disorders. Okay. So okay. I worked with them while I was doing my master's and that kind of increased my exposure. And then when I went to this private psychiatric hospital, I said, yep, I'm here. Mm-hmm. but I want to run the DBT groups and I want to be treating BPD. That's my thing. And they went, yep, sure, go for it. Yeah, wow. Um, okay. So there's a bit of a calling into working with this type of uh, patient group because mm. they do need 
a very particular type of care and management and input and treatment. Yeah. Um, okay. But it just it fits well for me, so I enjoy do, it. You know what I just realised is so cool about chatting to you is because I've been having chats with people that I work with because uh, I work in a high school and we work in a well wellbeing department and borderline comes up a lot, not so much because of mm-hmm. the kids, but we suspect that some of the parents have it and that kind of stuff. No, we're not diagnosing, but we just suspect just some, some of the symptoms yep. and, yeah. We call them trays. Trays, yeah, sorry, mm. yeah, trays. And I'm like, I'd really love to chat to someone about borderline. And yep. I, di- I didn't know that I could be chatting to you about it. Uh, so this is great. Um, but we're obviously, we're, yeah, we're going to be talking about other stuff. But I was just wondering, could you give an explanation, uh, like is even as simplified as what you can, um, of like um, either borderline or personality disorder, personality disorder in general? What, what does that actually mean? Yeah, so look, to be perfectly honest, it's an outdated term that isn't very useful and unfortunately it's the one that we have and it's the one that we continue to use until they come up with a better one. But personality disorder, so there's 10 different types recognised within psychiatry, specifically within the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, Mm -hmm. which is American. There's another version called the ICD, which is international. There's a bit of discrepancy. They're all arguing, but we'll leave that to the professors in America. (laughs) Anyway, um, so there's 10 different types of personality disorders that roughly comes down to a cluster of symptoms that impairs the person's ability to engage socially and form relationships with others and impairs their uh, capacity to function in a social occupational setting in a way that is so severe that it dominates all aspects of life. And we see usually the emergence through kind of mid to late adolescence. So, yes, borderline personality disorder, we would often start to see the emergence of that around about kind of 14, 16. We'd start picking it up by 18 to 25. It's pretty clear that it's there. If someone suddenly develops BPD at 45, you've got the wrong diagnosis. So it's... um, We know that it is linked with uh, sensitivity and temperament in early childhood and the way in which those children are cared for by their parents will have an impact on their development of their personality. Now, borderline personality, terrible name. It was originally developed uh, in the early 1980s, I think, as the border between neurosis and psychosis. That's what I remember it as. Yeah. That's what, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, that, that doesn't actually tell us anything no. useful in terms of how this patient group is kind of presenting and what they're struggling with. Yeah. Um, it's the standard thing within the DSM. There's nine criteria. You've got to have five or more in order to meet the diagnosis or the kind of diagnostic threshold. And we look at things like fears of abandonment, identity disturbance. So I don't really know who I am within myself. So we often see the what I call the chameleon effect. Mm-hmm. So they'll change how they present themselves depending on who they're with. Uh, we'll see high levels of impulsivity. Uh, there can be self-harm or suicidal behaviours and ideation. We can see a lot of relationship difficulties, emotional difficulties, anger outbursts. And where it picks up on the psychosis is this thing that they call transient quasi-psychotic symptoms, which basically means when you get stressed, you get paranoid. That's mm. the simplest way of putting it. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if I got all nine there or I stopped counting. Uh, but those sort of cluster of symptoms is what we'd see. And it usually presents to me for patients with... I don't like my emotions. I don't know how to control them. I don't know who I am. All my relationships are a mess. Mm. I live in chaos. And so through my private or through the private hospital, we use a DBT approach. Through my individual work, we use a schema therapy approach. 
both uh, therapeutic approaches were developed for borderline personality disorder in the mm-hmm. beginning. Yeah. We know that we can use those frameworks for different disorders as well. Eating disorders is quite commonly treated with both of those approaches now. Mm-hmm. Schema therapy, originally, like Jeffrey Young came up with the idea of schema therapy, then schema mode therapy was developed by a guy called Arntz, who's Denmark, Sweden. I'm going to screw that up, Scandinavia, around that area somewhere. Forgive, I hope he forgives me for that. I can never remember. <laughs> um, and I did my training on scheme and mode therapy in 2014 with two American ladies, uh, which it's huge in America. It's huge in Europe. It's tiny in Australia, which is why a lot of people don't really know about it. Mm. So that's one of the reasons why I put together the schema YouTube clips because hardly anyone knows about it, particularly in Australia, and that's where a large portion of our audience is. And then I don't know if you've seen them, but on our website we also have handouts for each of the modes. Yeah. And they are accessed internationally because I haven't found anyone who's written anything like what I've written to try and help patients understand what is this language, what is this framework. There's so many moving parts, I can't keep it straight. Mm. So. That's kind of where we, uh, from my clinical experience and my knowledge that I've gained through my training, then it was let's get the word out there, let's educate people so they can understand their own therapy to take more ownership of their recovery. Yeah, okay. So I guess let's, yeah, perfect time to talk about the schema, what is a schema, I guess schema therapy. How could you explain what a a schema is? What is a schema? So think of a schema kind of like a schematic drawing, right? So a blueprint. Mm-hmm. Set of prints for if you're building a house or something. So schema basically refers to the way in which our brain organises and makes sense of information. So schemas are networks of information that are organised and categorised in certain ways. So say you have a schema. Um, do you remember mind maps? Do you remember when you are in primary school and they'd kind of mm-hmm. draw like animals in the middle and then you'd have kind of these offshoots and branches and you'd go farm animals, jungle animals, kind of ocean animals and then within the farm animals you could break it down into cat dog horse sheep chicken and then if you're really talented you can go german shepherd labrador border collie kelpie and you could break it down into small layers so that's kind of like what a schema is it's a way in which you organize information Mm -hmm. so a schema in the way that jeffrey young developed it he did kind of some surveys and research back in the 80s and identified 18 different maladaptive schemas. Uh And you you can Google this list. I've got the handout on my website or you can Google it anyway. The 18 maladaptive schemas by Jeffrey Young. And basically that refers to a category of a core belief. Mm -hmm. So a core belief would be something like every time I try something, I screw up. Mm -hmm. And Jeffrey Young would call that a failure schema. So failure is kind of like the category and then the beliefs fit as the subset within that category. Mm-hmm. So if you had a schema of abandonment, then your beliefs would be things like everyone always leaves me, there's no point getting in relationships, they're always going to end, no one wants me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you'd see thoughts, you'd see behaviours, you'd see mood states that would fit into this category that they would call abandonment or failure or defectiveness. Mm-hmm. And there's 18 different ones there that look at the way in which people learn to conceptualise themselves, other people, and their position within the world. Mm, okay. That's schemas. All right. And the difference between schemas and schema modes. Okay. So what's the difference then? Okay. So a schema is just kind of the category. 
mm-hmm. of the beliefs, of the, the thoughts or the interpretations. Schema modes are almost more like moods, but they have a behavioural component. So have you ever seen the movie Inside Out? Yeah. The Disney Pixar movie. I watched right? watch it, watch it with my daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So keep that in mind as I explain this because in that movie it kind of shows inside the control centre of the brain mm-hmm. and you've got joy and anger and sadness disgust and fear and each of those kind of emotions as characters have their own kind of set of thinking their own speech their own things that they worry about the things they focus on and their own behaviors schema modes kind of fits with that sort of metaphor so it uses these analogies of imagine that you've got different parts within yourself different parts, different kind of characters in the brain that have a different role, they have a different function, they have a different way of speaking or believing about stuff and ways of acting, and they all interact with each other, which is where we start getting labels of things like the vulnerable child and the angry child and the coping modes and the healthy adult and the inner critic and all those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right, that makes sense. Can you see why when I did my original video on schema (laughs) therapy, I use a whiteboard and I draw for a picture? (laughs) This stuff is really hard to understand without the aid of diagrams and me drawing lines, rainbow arches all over the place. And yeah, and that's that's why I had to watch it a few times. I mean, you you've explained it brilliantly, but it's just it's a tough concept. It's like it's it is. Yeah, I mean. I mean, as someone, I guess, um, I'm sure you'd probably think the same thing. That's like someone that's like going through schema therapy may not need to know all all this stuff. But I don't know. I don't know. Actually, what do you think about that? How much do you think someone that's actually going through or having the therapy, like, um, uh, you know, um, given to them as a as a patient? I guess, for lack of better terms. Um, yeah. How much do they need to know? Yeah, so there's a couple of core things. So I'm doing schema therapy with some of my individual clients at the moment. And I'd say, right, start with this one. Start with the mode overview where I draw the diagram because that puts all the players on the board. Yeah. Right. But then I've also made videos for every subsequent mode within that framework. So there's 17 modes that is identified by schema therapy. Mm -hmm. And so I've done kind of 17 separate little videos on this to explain it all in detail. So once they've done the overview and there's questionnaires that I can give people to help identify which modes they have, because no one's got all of them, particularly for the coping modes, no one has all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Just from kind of having a chat with them over a couple of sessions, I can get a pretty good gauge. So then I'd take the diagram and I'd start circling, right, I need you to watch the video on this one and this one, and you have this, 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 and that one and that one. So, right, here's your eight. Go watch the videos on these eight. Here's Mm. the worksheets for those eight and then come back and we'll go through them together. Okay. So the, the value for me with the videos is I don't have to spend session time explaining <laughs> all of this theory. I can yeah. spend session time applying all of the theory, which helps when you've only got like 20 sessions under Medicare, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, um, okay. But it also okay. means exactly as you said, schema is a whole nother language. It's like trying to learn Swahili. Mm. It's just so abstract and it's so outside of the realm of our normal vernacular Mm. that some people do need to watch the video three or four times they need the revision they need kind of the consolidation of the memory or we'll do some work and i go okay now go back and watch it again and it's been three months and we've been doing this work and now you're like oh yeah i missed that bit before but now that relates to here and things like that Mm. so that's where for for, for my own personal use the video is coming really helpful yeah. Because patients have the opportunity to go back and educate themselves and consolidate. Okay. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. 
maybe what could we what can I ask you about next? I guess maybe the the parts that I, I found like most relevant to myself um watching the videos with the talking about the vulnerable child and the angry yeah. child. Uh, I guess actually maybe the good point the point to jump into that is these uh I think even from what you said, and you know, I guess even Jeffrey Young says, or most people talk about it, through unmet needs, is it that maladaptive schemas are developed or how would you best yeah. explain that? Yeah, so pretty, I mean, have, do you remember when your daughter was two? Yeah. What was the, her opinion of herself at two? <laughs> nah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be I, able to. <laughs> generally, I've, my, my daughters are four and six, and I remember when they were two, and their opinion of themselves is, I am awesome. Okay. I am the best at everything. Okay. They go through the stage of, I do it. I do it myself. Yeah, okay. Right? And okay. They, they, they see themselves as 10 foot tall and bulletproof, even though they're tiny and they're two. Okay. So it's okay. what we call egocentric. And yep. generally kids with a healthy upbringing will be quite um, narcissistic. They, they're, they're very self-serving. They see themselves as amazing, okay. right? So that's what you would expect that's, in a healthy environment. In a healthy, right? Yeah. From, from a very early age, they yep. would explore their environment and they'd be kind of happy, well-dispositioned kids. But if they are raised in an environment where they hear things like, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Yep. If they hear, why can't you be more like your sister? Stop being so loud. You've done this wrong. You've done that wrong. Stop being so sensitive. Then mm. their needs for emotional development aren't being met mm -hmm. and they start to develop um, unhelpful beliefs about themselves. They start seeing themselves as, well, mum always says that I'm, not as good as my sister, so that must mean that I'm a failure. Mm -hmm. Or dad left when I was three and I never heard from him again. That means everyone else is going to leave me again, so I've got abandonment schemas. Yeah. Or um, perhaps mum's really sick and she's in bed all of the time, so it's my job to go and look after her so then we get mm. self-sacrificing. Yeah. If you've got a really dominant parent who doesn't let the child get a word in or talk about their stuff or their ideas, then you might have that child grow into an adult who starts to subjugate and hands over control to other people. Mm -hmm. You can also get the kind of helicopter parents of who's my special little boy. He's amazing. He never does anything wrong. He's so wonderful. And yeah. then you get entitlement schemas and people who have an inflated sense of self-worth, which if it's inflated to the point of mm, Trump, then we see that it's still maladaptive <laughs> because it's not actually serving a rational yeah. purpose. Yeah, okay. So right. there are adaptive schemas. Yeah, okay. okay. But we don't talk about them because if it, from a psychologist's point of yeah. view, if it ain't, Why would you? don't <laughs> fix it. <laughs> exactly, okay. So Jeffrey Young only did his research and his publications around maladaptive schemas. Okay. I've yeah. gone hunting for the list of adaptive schemas. It's actually quite hard to find. Someone has made a list. There's yeah. 12 of them. Um, they're kind of how the ideal perfect human would be. Okay. Um, but most of us have maladaptive schemas yep. of one or two because all of us have had adversity or teasing or bullying or stuff mm. that we've had to deal with that has kind of built up that inner critic within us. Yeah. So okay. schemas said if you've had unmet childhood needs of attachment, autonomy, mm -hmm. uh spontaneity, play, freedom, boundaries, mm -hmm. also important, yep. then you'd likely to, you're more likely to develop maladaptive ways of thinking about yourself and more maladaptive ways of coping with the world because yep. you didn't have the healthy foundation to start with. So are they, are they categorised? Is there a number of categories like for unmet needs or is it just like yeah. is there a whole? Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, so we've got a handout on that one too. Jeffrey Young published that. So yeah. attachment, autonomy, yeah. freedom to express, spontaneity yeah. in play, and boundaries. Mm-hmm. It's the okay. five categories of needs for healthy psychological development. Yeah, We're not okay. talking about food and water and shelter because that's more physical yeah. um, development. They, Jeffrey Young only focused on the psychological developmental needs. So what would, say, um, maybe lack of attention or lack of love come under, do you think? Possibly. Yeah, so that would come mostly around attachment. Oh, so okay. what you want is for a child to feel wanted and connected and safe and valued. Yeah. But then things like autonomy of is the child given appropriate opportunities to learn how to do stuff? Yeah. Um, as opposed to is the child being forced to do stuff that's actually beyond a reasonable capability for a child that age? Okay. Okay. So yeah. are they over-parentified and having to do the cooking and the cleaning at home at the age of six because mum's in bed or dad's drunk or whatever? Um, Or are they not given the opportunities for development either through poverty, through parental absence, even those kind of moments where the parent goes, oh, for God's sake, I'll put your shoes on. We've just got to hurry up and get out of here. That every now and again, not going to cause problems. Mm. But that repeated means the child learns I'm not good at things. I can't even get my shoes right. So mum's mm. got to do stuff for me. And that means they develop a dependency schema or yeah. an incompetence schema. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, man, I, I love talking about this. It's such a passion topic for me. I just love it so much. Um, so maybe the next thing would be to, I guess, ask you about how would you explain then the vulnerable child? Yeah. So this is where we jump back into the modes, right? So think, kind of keep that image of inside out moving inside your head uh-huh. and think about it as sadness, right? The little blue one. Mm-hmm. Now, regardless of whether you had a perfectly healthy childhood or a less than ideal childhood, everyone has a vulnerable child simply from the fact that every child who is born is inherently vulnerable for the mm-hmm. fact that they can't protect themselves. Okay. I remember, right. you, I remember so, you saying that in the video. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember saying it was like nearly line by line. So, yeah, all right, okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I've, I've, I've delivered this a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've got my kind of my thing down pat. Okay. Um, so every child has physical vulnerabilities that mm-hmm. over time we grow out of simply as we become more independent. Yep. But our emotional vulnerabilities, our capacity to feel scared, our capacity to feel lonely, our capacity to feel like we're being judged by other people. We never grow out of that. Mm -hmm. So if you have a child who is scared, who feels lonely, who's worried about stuff, the way in which the parent responds to the needs of those child will determine whether or not that kid has a good, healthy outcome or a less than ideal outcome and comes hangs out with me. Mm -hmm. Um, So if let's say... If there's a really loud thunderstorm, we've had some shockers of storms in New South Wales lately. So we had some big thunderstorms the other week and my six-year-old woke up in the middle of the night. Now, if I responded with stop being ridiculous, it's just a storm, there's nothing to worry about, go back to bed. Mm. What she's learned is when I'm scared, mum's not there for me. My emotions aren't allowed. I shouldn't be feeling this way. There must be something wrong with me. Mm. Whereas instead, if you respond with 
it's okay. I'm here. Yeah, it's a really loud storm. Come and have a cuddle. The storm will pass. You can stay with me until you feel ready to go back to bed. Then the child learns, I can have these feelings and mum's going to be there to look after me. That doesn't actually take away the vulnerability. It just supports her with the vulnerability. Mm. So the vulnerable child is conceptualised as as that inner child Mm -hmm. that feels all of those kind of intense negative emotions Mm. that we never actually grow out of. Like, 40-year-olds still get scared, 90-year-olds still get scared, kind of 150-year-old, if they live that long, would still feel scared, right? At no point do we ever grow out of our emotional vulnerability. This is the whole Brene Brown platform, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone has inherent vulnerability. Not everyone knows how to deal with their inherent vulnerability, and that's where scheme starts. Okay. So then where does the angry child come in? Right. So let's imagine that you have a four-year-old girl who's feeling really terrified, really sad, really upset about something, and she's crying. Mm -hmm. Now imagine that that four-year-old girl is crying in a room full of all of her relatives, 50 people there, all of whom have some level of responsibility for the well-being of this child, and no one's paying any attention to this kid. Mm -hmm. So you've got a vulnerable child who's feeling intense emotions, who's not being supported. She's not getting her needs met. Now imagine that kid has a brother, say six or seven, old enough to know there's something wrong with my sister, not old enough to be able to do anything to fix it. Mm. So what is the most effective way for six-year-olds to get attention in a room full of adults that are ignoring them? Pitch a fit. Yeah. So you have a tantrum. That's a pretty surefire way to get attention from a group of adults when there's a problem, you're not paying attention, so I'm going to scream and yell and swear and throw stuff until you come over here and pay attention and realise that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> in the unskilled kind of capacity of a six-year-old, that's the best they can do. But when you've got a 26-year-old, or a 46-year-old or a 66-year-old who is still having tantrums because they're not getting their own way, mm. that's not a skillful way to be managing yourself and your relationships in adult society. Mm. So schema therapy, the approach is anger is a really useful emotion mm. if you can harness it. Yeah. So anger in its purest form, anger is an emotion that is activated when we believe that someone has created a barrier or an obstacle to us getting our needs met. Mm-hmm. And if you're able to put your hand up and go, hey, this just happened to me. I'm not okay with it. We need to talk about this to make some changes. Mm. That's appropriate. That's really helpful. Anger is the one of the ways that we protect ourselves. Mm. But when you smash a TV, throw a brick through a window, mm. chuck stuff, scream stuff, swear, yell as yeah. a way of trying to draw in attention, what you actually do is push people away. Mm. So schema therapy is around saying the anger that you are feeling because you've been treated unfairly, that's justified. Mm-hmm. And we need to moderate your behaviour so it is more skillful in actually getting your needs met. Yeah. Because okay. if you pitch a fit, like I'm, okay, I work at a private psychiatric hospital and we have many patients and sometimes they get angry because they're, not feeling heard or they're not getting their way on something. Mm. If they start throwing stuff at nurses or they start kicking doors or tossing over chairs, there's going to be consequences to those Mm behaviours. 
right? Because we have to set limits to maintain safety. But if instead the person's going, I'm really angry because I'm not feeling heard and I just want someone to sit down and listen to me. Okay, fine. Take a seat. Let's hear it. We want to know what you have to say. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, it's around helping them to moderate the expression of the behaviour so that they're actually going to get their needs met in a way that draws people in yeah. instead of pushing people away. Okay. Yeah, I, there was definitely um, there was some relevance there to like in my own kind of therapy with my psych about the angry child particularly. That came up a lot. Um, now, I, I wasn't someone that threw, I guess, tantrums but i guess that could be looked at in a different way when you're older that can come out differently um and even even like um you know like i would never smash things or anything like that but i would just get i can get angry i've got the capacity to get mm-hmm. really angry um but generally my anger was turned inwards inward yeah yep. um but you know what anger has been to a point and that I've had to get over in the last three years, say maybe five years ago, anger to a point has been one of the most productive things that I could have felt because of not saying it's it's the be- definitely not been the greatest thing because I've had to move on from it, but to get me to where I was to a point, I needed anger. So maybe maybe I had like a, a better relationship with it than other people because generally when I, uh, well, Matt, not a relationship, but better use for it than other people. Because mm-hmm. when, when I got angry, when I got frustrated, something changed. Yes. Uh, yeah. So maybe talking about schemas before, maybe does that mean that maybe um, when I got angry or when I felt something had somebody had done me wrong or whatever it is that I was able to fix it or my way, my searching my way out of things, I I, I always knew there was going to be an answer. So I'm not sure what that comes under in schema. Yeah. But- so, well, that just kind of goes back to the basics of emotions, right? Anger is a forward momenting emotion. Yep. It is an emotion that because every emotion has an action urge, right? Every emotion mm-hmm. is designed to help us to, to do something. Yep. Joy and anger are forward. Sadness and fear are retreat. Uh-huh. Surprise and disgust are pause. And we can do another podcast on that another day. But <laughs> okay. anger is an emotion that drives us forward, yep. right? It, 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 is, it is an emotion that says something is wrong or, or I was treated unfairly. This needs to change. So anger facilitates change. Mm-hmm. But you think about people who are, protesting they're trying to facilitate change Mm. you think about people who are yelling at customer service they're trying to facilitate change they want something to be different yeah if you can harness that skillfully then yeah anger is really powerful really really powerful as long as you can communicate your anger in a way that someone is willing to hear your message and get on board with the change (laughs) as opposed to the aggression, which is a behaviour, which yeah. is intimidating and makes people run away from you because you're too scary to be around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got better at it over the years, but I guess <laughs> yeah. it's it's um, yeah, I, I I needed to learn how to use it, and it's probably yeah only in the last say five or ten years that I've learned how to use it in a far more much more healthy productive, way. Yeah. So yeah, productive. Way. So do you think? So my my upbringing, say for particularly when I was say. Um, Around the four, around that year of four or five um, yeah. of age, is when my mum married someone who turned out to be pretty violent, and I was someone who had to protect her. So, do you mm-hmm. think? Do you think it could even come out of that kind of need? So, the fear, um, not the fear, the um, the safety aspect of like I needed to do this to uh, to feel that I was safe. Do you think there's? Can it, well, can it, 
This is where we get to the difference between angry child mode from schema therapy and angry protector mode. Ah, yes, you have spoken so about that. Yeah, cool. we, yeah, so there's two different ways that we conceptualise anger from a schema therapy framework. Yeah. So the coping modes are about kind of helping us to protect our vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? So angry child is about drawing someone in, saying, hey, there's a problem, can you come over here and help me with it? Angry protector is that wall of anger that kind of pushes back and pushes away to say, no, get away from me because you were making me feel vulnerable and I want to push you away. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's probably more of where people would use anger and aggression as more of a self-defense mechanism because the function of that is to push people away and create distance. Mm. Angry child is saying, come here, come and help me, come in. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that that explains it really well. So, how how can these present? Uh, I think you kind of touched on it before. Say, as an adult, so like the way that say someone might get angry as a child compared to how they are as an adult. How could someone mm-hmm. that may be experiencing this? What what might it look like for anger? Yeah, for, say anger, the yeah. anger, uh, or even the protector one. How, how, yeah, yeah. So the angry child. Look, I've already described kind of the externalizing display of anger and aggression that we would see, and everyone's familiar with those signs. Sometimes it's not as obvious as that. Sometimes anger can be the silent treatment, which we'd call stonewalling. Sometimes it can be kind of the more subtle, I'm not talking to you, kind of you know what you did sort of thing, um, which, again, isn't kind of overly helpful because it's it's not communicating to get needs met. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of self-sabotage in those sort of things. Um, Angry protector is more of a F off, F you, get away from me, get out of my face, go away, leave me alone. So I would see this in therapy of where I'm starting to touch on some vulnerability and they're pushing away and they're pushing back with kind of this display of anger that's designed to intimidate me so I run away and then they get what they want, which is leave me alone because that feels too vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I don't scare that easily. Um, So I know (laughs) that if I'm seeing that sort of behaviour, I've found the right spot to work on and then kind of we manage safety and risk and all of that, but it's like, yeah, okay, there's a big thing here that actually needs our attention. So we'd modify the way in which we'd approach that, but we'd still work on approaching that. Yeah. Okay. So, like, I think what I, what I really like this about this topic is that, as we said, as you said before, like probably everybody could get something out of it. You don't have to have experienced com- like necessarily great unmet me- unmet needs as a child, or you didn't have to have like a really bad upbringing. Like anybody, you know, like could could get something out of learning more about this. Um, actually, I really I realized there's a couple more a couple more points that I wanted to ask you about. So. What would be the other one? So the other one, how, how can we talk about the inner critic and what that might be like? Yeah, so the inner critic, okay, so go back to the two-year-old who thinks they're awesome, right? Mm-hmm. How do you go from a two-year-old who thinks they're awesome to a 12-year-old who hates himself to a 22-year-old who's depressed? You've heard that line in my video as well, haven't you? Yeah. So <laughs> basically it comes down to outside influences. Yeah. Okay. So a two-year-old who's raised in an environment with lots of positive reinforcement and praise and they feel wanted and connected in the family, are going to have a low-level inner critic. Not absent, we've all got something because we can never be 100% protected from negative feedback. We also don't want to be protected 100% from negative feedback because there's growth in someone saying, hey, you did 
that thing and that wasn't good and you need to do it differently next time. That's that's a learning opportunity. Yeah. But if you grew up with severe bullying, severe invalidation, severe kind of put downs and that, then you would start to take those messages from outside sources, so external sources, and you would begin to internalise them over time. Okay. So sometimes the inner critic develops from specific negative feedback. Mm. Sometimes it develops from the absence of positive feedback. Okay. So I brought home my spelling test and I got nine out of 10 and mum didn't say she was proud of me. So that must mean that she's not proud of me. Yeah, you got to remember okay. in the mind of a child, mm. because they're egocentric, mm. which is developmentally appropriate, mm. they think that anything that happens happens because of them. Yeah. So a, that's a, a that's five-year-old. A, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really, you go. I was going to say, that's a really interesting point because my next question was going to be about how mine is. So, uh, like, my kind of, my critic, which I've spoken about with my um, my psych, is, it's, it's an odd one to me because my parents weren't necessarily, like, harsh or negative or critical where my, uh, and they don't listen, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> me neither. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, oh, that probably, I was going to ask you before where your passion comes from. That probably might be where. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. yeah. Another, another podcast episode. Yeah, um, sure. Um, we'll do a so, series. It'll be Yeah, great. we could do Oh, man, that'd be so good. So, um, yeah, so it's like my inner critic is more about me. I don't hear my parents' voice. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's like maybe that, as you say, so like when, when we say, um, okay, so mum didn't say that she was proud, so therefore maybe she's not You proud, filled in the blanks, yeah, I which is in why it's in your voice. Yeah. So like yeah. Uh, and then even particularly now, just as an example, when I'm like I've been um, getting a bit sidetracked with a few things with study and because I've got to get up super early to study and do it like be a dad and all this kind of stuff, when I've that's fallen off track a little bit, I can get pretty harsh with myself. But I, like I'm, it's almost, it's a funny one because it's like, like you could be doing so much better. Why are you not doing better? Why are you not being consistent? It's not necessarily negative critic, but it's ah. not a critic. So I, it's a, so yeah. This is the difference between the punitive parent and the demanding parent as to how schema therapy conceptualizes it. Okay. So schema mode talks about two different types of critics. Yeah. Right? Okay. It okay. uses the term punitive parent and demanding parent because it starts with the assumption that it probably came from a parent or a parent-like influence. Okay. So it doesn't necessarily have to be mum or dad. It could have been auntie, uncle, grandparent, teacher, coach, religious leader, scout leader, ah. older siblings, peers. So it doesn't matter, doesn't matter how old you are? No. Well, obviously, like the earlier it starts, yeah, the okay. stronger the influence would be. But it doesn't just have to come from mum and dad. Anyone who is in a position of kind of authority or seniority or who had a responsibility of caring for you and were supposed to be meeting your needs okay. and weren't, okay. that's where we can see kind of the kind of the inner critics coming from. So okay. the demanding parent is different to the punitive parent or demanding critic, punitive critic, whatever you want to call it. Some people yeah. don't like using the parent labels because they feel like they're blaming mum, but mum wasn't the problem. It was actually Aunty Sue and whatever else. Yeah, okay. So the punitive one is the one who just throws criticism. It's you're an idiot, you're a loser, you're stupid, no one likes you, no one loves you. It has nothing to offer except criticism. Uh -huh. The demanding parent is a bit different. This one has a whip and a megaphone. This is the one who is saying, do more, try harder, push yourself. That's not good enough. Get up at 5 a.m. and make sure you've got everything done before you walk out the door and do this and do that. So that one's really kind of the, the, the kind of hardcore gymnastics coach who's like again 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 who's really really pushing some people have a strong 
punitive parents. Some people have a strong demanding parent. Some yeah. have strong both. Yeah. Um, and we, it's important to differentiate between the two because from schema therapy, we have different tactics that we use for each type of the critic. Yeah, okay. That's, that's why I find it, like, it's a bit intriguing to me about that one, um, but that, that, um, that subject of it because it's, um, so I wouldn't say necessarily, say, like, both my parents weren't necessarily punitive, maybe in some ways when I was younger, but uh, actually, yeah, maybe that's where it could come out of. Maybe that's, but it's not like so. The kind of demands that I have on myself now, they don't match anywhere near what they what they would have had as a child. Like my parents weren't like necessarily weren't pushing as in like you can do this. Why you're not doing that? It was almost like that they weren't seeing my value, and yeah. now and now I make up so for that's it now. The absence. Uh, yeah, and now I make up for it now by being like seeing the value. Why you're not using it? That's kind of mm-hmm. where I get upset, upset mm-hmm. at myself. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it does intrigue me, actually. Um, yeah, but also it's not just your parents. What was your teacher's response? Like yeah, when yeah. you got a B on an assignment, would your teachers kind of give the, come on, Jamie, we know you can do better than that. You're not applying yourself. Do you remember yeah. that from report cards? Yeah, yeah maybe <laughs> they did. And maybe I, I just, maybe, and I've just forgotten about it, but maybe I heard it at some point at, at a critical stage of development. Maybe I did. And, and yeah, and I just, it's, but yeah, it intrigues me. Hey, you, you know what? Whoever, however my brain has interpreted it, I'm glad I've had it, but I'm also glad that I've got like a healthier way of dealing with it now. It's not the healthiest, yeah. but I'm getting better as time goes on. Cause it's, it's, you know, having that somewhat of a, a critic in there to like a healthy, healthy somewhat. Actually, maybe it's not healthy. Maybe my healthy, uh-huh. uh, that leads us to the next stage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cause it, all right. So I've got a healthy side of me that comes in. Can we talk about that? What's the healthy adult? Yeah. So the healthy adult is the kind of version, again, the language that schema mode therapy uses, where if you've got a child, then what you need is a parent or an adult to kind of step in and care for the needs of that child. So while you never get rid of your vulnerable child, we do all need to kind of grow up and learn how to adult, how to do the adulting things, but to do that in uh, healthy and adaptive ways. Mm-hmm. So your, your healthy adult, you need your healthy adult and it can kind of pick up a couple of things from your demanding parent. We talk about with the punitive parent is an on-off switch, just turn it off. The demanding parent, it's volume control. Right, we do need a little bit. Like you need the voice in the back of your head that says, "Come on, Jess, get out of bed. You've turned off. You've hit snooze three times on your alarm. If you don't get up now, you're gonna be late for work." Right? I, yeah. I need that voice in my head. What I don't need is a voice that says, "Get up at five o'clock in the morning. Make sure the kids have a three-course lunch packed. Mop the floors. Dust the house. Vacuum the cat. And make sure all of this stuff is done before you're allowed to start your day." Uh-huh. That's unrealistic. So the healthy adult kind of negotiates with the demanding parent to kind of go, well, this is what you want done. That's not realistic. We're going to do this bit of this over here and the rest of it can be done later or it doesn't need to be done at all. So it's finding that healthy way to have the balance so that we're still motivating ourselves, Mm. but motivating ourselves through goal-driven or values-driven choices and decisions instead of a whip and a megaphone that we become scared of. Yeah, Carrot yeah, okay. or stick? Yeah, yeah, okay. And, I, yeah, maybe um, in regards to my kind of own experience with it, it, it like it, it takes time um, because, like, I, like, I guess I only had, like, a harsher kind of view on my, like, motivating myself even. And then it was just through time I've been able to be far more healthy with it. And, yeah, I'm still working on it. 
but I'm definitely in a much better position than one than that I once was. So I guess you can't just snap out of it. I guess you got to. It takes time. Yeah, of course. And as with anything within psychology, and sorry, I'm choking on my tea. <laughs> take your take, <laughs> the, take time, time. The minute you sign up for schema therapy, mm. you're in for the long haul. Okay. Right, the the schema schema mode therapy isn't adequately done in ten sessions. Okay, yeah. Yeah. it's schema therapy because it is changing and modifying behavioural patterns and thinking patterns that have developed over decades. Mm. That's going to take some time to change. You've got to rewire your brain. Yeah, this is where we lean on the principles of neuroplasticity. Yeah, because if you yeah, it's you can't just change this stuff overnight. You are changing your view of the world you are changing your view of yourself you're modifying your identity mm. that stuff takes time and a heck of a lot of effort yeah and homework as my patients will tell you yeah 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 absolutely okay so i guess maybe maybe getting to to that side of it how could you give an overview of how you would work with a patient well like i don't know you could even give like a typical kind of example if possible from a, of a schema therapy mode yeah yeah so obviously, first of all, is it starts off with the education, which is what we call mode awareness. You need to become aware of these different parts. You need to get really good at kind of hearing that voice in the back of your head and going, oh, yeah, that was my demanding parent telling me that I've got to work harder and that's my vulnerable child who's feeling scared at the expectation that is being set upon them and there's mm. my kind of healthy adult mode going, no, 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 kind of come on, let's be realistic. We can modify this a little bit. Yeah. Most of my patients, to be honest, to start with, don't have a very strong, healthy adult. They're mm. more likely to have their inner critics are running the show when their vulnerable child is cowering in the corner. Ah. So I kind of think of it as once you've got to the point of mode awareness where they're having that kind of, they're able to catch themselves, they're able to see what we call mode flipping, where you flip from one mode to another and to go, oh, yeah, there's that one and there's that one. Mm. Then we get to mode management. And kind of think of that as the healthy adult becomes the stage director of a theatre production. Yep. And at the moment, if your inner critic is the one who's ruling your life, that's the one who's got the megaphone bossing everybody else around. Mm -hmm. But instead for the healthy adult to kind of wrestle that microphone and go, right, I'm in charge from now on, we're doing this healthy way, mm. vulnerable child goes centre stage, under the spotlight, right at the front, vulnerabilities first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Angry child kind of comes in next to the vulnerable child, right? Mm -hmm. To the coping modes, to the ways that we have relied on our certain coping styles that have gotten us through, they've kept us alive, they've got us this far. Thank you very much for your efforts. Go sit on the bench, yeah. right? You're now the substitutes. You're not You're not the quarterback anymore. Go, move, move over. I'll, I'll call you in if I need you, but yeah. right now, step to the side. Yeah. The punitive critic, you go, get out. Get out of my theatre. I don't need you. I don't want you around. Get out. Yeah, right? okay, okay. The demanding parent, you go, look, you're really bossy and it's a bit too intense. You're going into a timeout in the corner and I'll call you if I need you. <laughs> okay. Right? The happy child, which is one of the modes we haven't gotten to, this is another one of the healthy modes. Uh -huh. So we really want to promote this one, but it's our capacity to engage in play yeah. and novelty and exploration and creativity. As children, this may look like colouring in and Play-Doh. As adults, this looks like Lego and shoe shopping. Um, <laughs> but it's that part of us that is able to have fun. We sit around with our mates. We play cards against humanity. We have a laugh. That's the happy child. Mm -hmm. And 
again, it's one of those, even though it's called a child mode, we never actually grow out of it. Yeah. A lot of people lose touch with it. So for mm. schema therapy, we have to bring that back in. But play is still important in adulthood. It just looks different. Mm. So you'd have your kind of happy child frolicking around the stage and then you'd basically just wait for the kind of the, the life event to come in. All right, team, how are we going to deal with this one? All right, we're going to respond in this way and we're going to set a limit here and we're going to look after our emotions over there. Yep, that one's dealt with and let that go. Mm. The next event comes in. Maybe it's a, an argument with your partner and, and you kind of have your coping mode running in going, I know how to deal with this. Let's give him the silent treatment. You go, no, 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 we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> we're going to talk about our feelings and we're going to say, this is what I need from you and can you please get, help me get my needs met? Yeah. And we're going to respond to this in healthy ways that looks after the vulnerability. Yeah. So we deal with that and that one goes and the next one comes in. And so that's kind of helping the patient. So usually it's kind of right, tell me about what happened over your week tell me what skills you used or which modes did you notice, which ones, uh, and how did you go with your healthy adult? Could your healthy adult manage this scenario? Oh, Mm. no, well, I got stuck with that because my inner critic got so loud that my healthy adult just didn't know what to do. Okay, well, let's troubleshoot and problem solve. The next time you're in a situation like this, what do we need your healthy adult to do? What skills do we need to be falling back on? What strategies do we need to be implementing for the next time this comes up? Yeah, okay. kind of the approach that we take. So there are some additional yeah. techniques we use in schema therapy of things like chair work and imagery. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But okay. that's more kind of targeting more historical stuff. Yeah. So you can take the historical approach to kind of reparent some early trauma experiences yeah, as well okay. as taking the like current day life adulting process. Mm. Okay. Hey, why um what would be like your, I guess, your best explanation of like why is it important for people to understand? It's like, is it because that a childhood has has played such a, um, a has has had such a big impact even on our adult lives, as we said before, that people people just don't realize that. Yeah, you know, is it like is it because I think I'd heard about it? Like, is it like our um, is it our belief system? That is um, that is created by the age of seven or something like that. It, like the way we, I guess, we see ourselves or something like that. A pretty significant part of our brain's kind of wiring processes oh, okay. happen okay. in kind of yeah about the first seven years because that's when we start to develop theory of mind. Okay. So your brain kind of comes out as a bit of a blank canvas. Yeah. And through from the moment we are born and, and they suggest that even before we are born, we start making connections. Right. Yeah. We the brain starts creating neural pathways and connections as we develop. If I do this, this arm thing moves. That's cool. Let's keep practicing that. And we develop motor control. Yeah. When you figure out that you develop neural pathways of if I look at this person, they come over to me. Well, then I that okay, that's mum. So we start developing kind of relationship pathways and social connections and things like that. And so much of the brain develops in the first seven years. Yeah. Then through puberty, we kind of go through a bit of a pruning process of, oh, I developed this when I was seven, but I don't really need that one anymore. So that one can be pruned, but I'll put more energy into this one because I really need to understand calculus. Joke's on you, kid. You don't use it at all. But (laughs) the teachers tell us it's important. So because so much of our 
wiring happens from an early age. Those early years, those those formative years are exactly that. They have a huge contribution to the way in which we see ourselves within our world and within our family. And so the way in which kind of like think of it of building a house, if you've got dodgy foundations, the house is going to crack. It's just a matter of time. You can go in and do repair work though. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah. But yeah, unreal. I love that. That's really good. So I guess then it was like through to like a, a survival uh, or a feeling yeah. of safety. That's why we did. That's why the brain does that. It wants to. Yeah. It wants to build somewhat of a foundation, and then we can kind of carry that even into our adult years, or just, which is what we do. And so yes. this is why I think it's important is because um, most people would never question that the way they think, uh, which may have been, I guess predominantly formed in their uh, in their um in their childhood or, or adolescence if they don't question it as an adult what if the way that they're thinking about themselves and the world and relationships what if it could be improved imagine how much your life could be improved so that's why i think it's so important for people to understand yeah people will usually only seek treatment when the symptoms that they're, at, that they're experiencing start to impact on their functioning so yeah. they yeah. won't come to me saying I think I need to reevaluate the messages that I learned in my childhood to become more of a healthy adult. They'll come to me and say, I'm depressed. Yeah. I'm worried about stuff all the time. Yeah. I don't like myself. My yeah. relationships keep falling apart. They're yeah. coming to me with symptoms and I've got to kind of walk them down the path of, right, let's go back to the beginning, figure yeah. out why you think the way you think, why you behave the way you behave and what changes do we need to make? Because yep. as kids, yeah. we are born with yeah. three coping responses, fight, yeah. flight, freeze. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And if you don't have healthy role models as a kid, you're not going to learn the fourth yeah. option, which is healthy adult. Okay. Okay. So if you developed or if you kind of relied on those exactly that, those survival mechanisms of fight, flight, freeze as a kid, yeah. well then of course you're gonna carry that into adulthood because that's all you know. Yeah. And it works so well when you were a kid. <laughs> but the reason why we have to kind of make some changes is because you're not a kid anymore. You're not in yeah. the same environment anymore. The context is different. Yeah. And there's other ways that you can learn this. There's more sophisticated, more skillful ways that you can be responding to situations without primitive fight, flight, freeze responses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's a great point. Most people wouldn't wouldn't really ever come across this unless they come to you, come to someone like you because they're not feeling that great or they're depressed. I mean, one of the reasons that I um, maybe I didn't really know it at the time, but one of the reasons I really started therapy back in the day uh, for, for it was like after a relationship breakdown or something like that. It was I, looking back on it, it was because I didn't like who I was. So one of the main reasons I started therapy is I didn't like who I was. So um, so that's why I've learned a lot about it. And then when I find something like this, I want to, I really want to nut it out. So I guess one of the like, I could talk about it on a podcast. I can talk about it on Instagram stuff. Not so or a YouTube on, channel or a YouTube channel. Yeah, Yay. not not so I'm talking about it as an expert, but I'm like, guys, you've got to listen about this this thing is like because like I what I, the message that I like trying to put out there for people is like. If there's like that discrepancy, which I think they um, they talked about in human humanistic theory, which is like the discrepancy between who you are and what you're getting, or who you are, the ideal self and the actual self, it's like like closing that gap because that gap that I had was far too big for me, and I didn't like who I was. I didn't. I loved. I loved life, and I even loved the really bad things that happened to me. 
I just didn't like myself. Like even when I went through my vision impairment, I, I still showed gratitude through that time. <laughs> like I was, you know, but I just didn't like who I was. <laughs> so yeah. I'm so happy that I came across this form of therapy that who knows, maybe the people listening to me like, nah, that's not for me. I'm, I'm not interested <laughs> to talk about childhood stuff, but I'm like, definitely everybody could get something from it to just yeah. question, at least question the way they think and the way they act as an adult. Um, even just in your marriage or the way that you parent and all that kind of stuff. There's just something in yeah. it for everyone. So it was life-changing If you don't know it, you can't change it. Yeah, exactly. So you have to get to know it. You have to get to know yourself. You have to get to know why you make the choices. Yeah. What is the function of the behaviour? Yeah, okay. Hey, we kind of just hit it on before and like, you don't have to share it now, but, I mean, what, what are the kind of things that you noticed in your childhood that were met, uh, unmet? Yeah, so my parents separated when I was two. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived with mum mostly. Yeah. Uh, I think she was a bit out of her depth. She was a young mum, not teenage, but but certainly young. Mm-hmm. Had some family support around, but kind of she grew up hard as well. She had a kind of police for a father. She had a school principal for a mother. Okay. Um, so I was raised with the stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about, um, stop being so sensitive don't be ridiculous, that's not a big deal, stop being such a drama queen. And while that kind of wouldn't necessarily count as trauma per se, there was a lot of invalidation. So a lot of messages to me of what you're feeling is wrong. Um, There were some very, very high expectations. I got the academic award three years in a row in primary school and then didn't get it in year six and it was like, well, what have you done wrong? Mm. So from that I... I had my own battles with kind of anxiety and and low mood and perfectionism and of course what do we do when we don't know ourselves and really struggling to cope with life we study psychology <laughs> <laughs> and that was the running gag throughout all of undergrad we're all here just to fix ourselves yeah okay. um, I started we, late pardon I started late I was uh, <laughs> I started studying when I was 30 because yeah, I, I'm an ex-tradesman, so that I and I yeah, lost. I, I figured that from the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's <laughs> it. so that's why I started late. But uh, the, yeah, okay. So that that gives good insight. Yeah. Then. Okay. But then also when I was 16, so I was in year 11, and this back in Perth, this high school that I attended started a peer support program. Okay. So it was year 11 students providing peer support to year eight students. And through that, I came across two girls in particular, one who disclosed to me that she had been abused when she was younger mm-hmm. and another one who had disclosed to me that she was engaging in some pretty significant self-harming behaviour. Yeah. Now, I, mean, I I was completely out of my depth, so I pretty much walked them down to the school psychology office and kind of handed them over and said, here, please help. But from that, I saw how effective that school psychologist was and how they were able to coordinate care and support and really help these kind of year eight students. I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. Okay. And that's that's when I decided to study psychology. So that was in year 11. Okay. Um, and then when I, I, I stumbled across schema therapy, I, I have to do training as part of my continuing professional development through work. I wanted something in personality disorders. I did a Google search and, and schema mode therapy for group work came up and I'd never heard of it before. Mm. I was like, yeah, okay, three-day workshop, This something for personality, let's go do this. Yeah. And I came back to work and I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> I've just learned this thing and it's amazing. 
thing and yeah. I'm so excited and this is so cool and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And I just absolutely fell in love with it because it resonated for me from a personal level. Yeah. And I know within myself if I use it myself, if I believe in it, if I buy into it, then my capacity to share the the skills and the knowledge with my patients is more genuine. Yeah. Um, I'm not sharing my life story with my patients, but the capacity to be able to go, like when you're feeling this way, let's try this skill and see what happens. And yeah. I can teach them what I've kind of, because I believe in it. I, I use this stuff myself, schema therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, the skills that you learn from those sort of frameworks, they're skills for life. They're not yeah. just skills for, oh, I was depressed for six months. So I use some skills for six months. No, 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 no. This is about your identity. This is about your sense of self. This is about your relationships. This is life skills. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so I think I'm a better therapist having done my own work and therefore believe in what I'm supporting my patients to do for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I think I'm like that as well. Although I love just when I can find something like this interesting, like if I ever get the chance to use it in like, I, I hope I get to use this one day because I just, I just love the concept of it and know how helpful it can be. Um, yeah. So that's. I think we've covered so much. Thank, we have. Thank you so much. You're this welcome. Is, this has been one of my favourite because it's been just. A, it's definitely. Oh, you a, say that to all your guests. Don't I you? definitely don't. I definitely don't. This <laughs> has been like as I said. I, I chatted to a, fr- a friend of mine at work, and we're we're even talking about doing this the schema therapy training or schema training. Yep. Some and, and because we weren't sure whether you could do it unless you had to be a psychologist or not. Whether why not? Anyway, we we're looking at it, and I'm like. I've come across this this person or come across this page and I've followed them on Instagram. I'm just going to message and just say, I'm like, oh, just I look at how lucky did I get? That was only last week. So, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. worked out well. You never, you never know. If you want to ask someone to do an interview, just, just message them. And, and luckily you were, you were um, kind yeah. enough to, to come and do it. So thank you so much again. Our whole so. philosophy for the site collective.com is to spread the word and help people educate themselves so that they can change their lives and, and take ownership for that. So anything that helps to kind of spread the word and yeah. and help people understand is right up our alley. Yeah, awesome. So I, uh, in the podcast notes, I will put uh, links to the site collective, uh, the website, I guess the YouTube, and Instagram. Facebook, Instagram, Facebook, Facebook and Pinterest. I'll find all of them and I'll put all the links <laughs> in, the, in the podcast show notes. But uh, Jess, thank you so much again for coming on. It's been, it's, seriously, it's been super cool. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Remember to subscribe on Apple, follow on Spotify, and I'm on Instagram as well if you go follow me there too. I've got some big news coming that I can't wait to share with people. I look forward to chatting with you next time. <laughs>